Hello and welcome to Future Projection of Baseball America podcast. This is episode 77 of the show. I am joined, as always, by my good friend, Ben Badler. What's going on, Ben? Getting a little jealousy out here, Carlos. Every year, like right around this time of year, like I see high school baseball starting up in uh, games in Texas, scrimmages, preseason stuff going on in Florida, some big JUCO stuff uh, already started and coming up this weekend. Some of the, like the area code preseason stuff that they do kicked off in Florida last weekend and in California this weekend. And here I am looking outside my window in Boston at the little coating of snow on the ground right now. Well, um, I mean, my weather is not too much better than you. We, we didn't, we don't have snow on the ground now, but we did for a little while, but it is nice that we actually have some real life baseball action starting. There've been some players, some high school players throwing upper nineties. I swear we just did a, a top 200 update for the 24 draft class in anticipation for college season starting and, and the actual high school and, and JUCO seasons getting rolling here. And it really feels like every high school player these days is throwing mid nineties fastball. Uh, we've got a couple bullpen sessions with the rep Soto setups of kids hitting some PRs after an off season of work. So we're starting to get little teases of the baseball season hitting us. And I know a lot of people are counting down the days to college baseball opening day. Um, so that's been fun. Um, but I don't know why you need to be jealous of me, Ben. Um, you can still enjoy all of this unless you're just specifically talking about you being trapped in Massachusetts early on. You need to schedule a trip to Texas like me. Uh, I think I'll, I think I'll probably have a trip down to the Dominican Republic and Okay, to, uh, who's jealous now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll before that, before uh, we get into baseball, Ben, um, I wanted to ask you: uh, Are you a light mode or a dark mode person for your phone and various apps when you're reading? Because I was I was kind of mind blown when I saw I saw a take that was basically the opposite of my take. But first, I want to know what your what your preference is, what your default is. I think mostly dark mode. Um, oh no. On on Twitter on the web, I, I think I just go with whatever the default setting is. But um, otherwise, yeah, probably mostly dark mode. Why? So your phone your phone is default to dark mode, like the the theme in your phone. The theme. Where do I? Is there like a specific setting for? Like yeah, there's like single... if you if you go to appearances, it'll just change like uh, in your messages. It'll be dark mode theme. The like basic UI is dark mode themed. Uh, I believe it's like settings and appearances, but it sounds like you are a dark mode guy, which I, I saw some post. I guess it was just a screenshot of someone who was using so, light so, mode. Sorry, so my settings, my settings are default to, to light mode, but it's like it's, I think okay, it depends perfect. on the app specifically. Yeah, you can cha- you can have specific apps where you click into them and it'll be dark mode in the app. But if right now you change your 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 standard phone setting to dark mode, a lot of your like basic UI stuff would change. Like your your messages app would be dark mode. Um, so first of all, weird that you're a dark mode guy, but your phone is not on dark mode, but also I, I hate dark mode. And I think it's crazy that people, it seems like I'm in the hot take position here though. Like it feels like online people love dark mode and it drives me crazy. Like I spend so much age? time reading it and I don't know if it's an age thing, but like when you read a book, it's a white background and black text. When you write, it's a white background and black text, unless you're like coding, I guess. I know there's some people who code on black screens. But the inverse to me, when I, whenever I am like scrolling my phone and I click in to read a screenshot of something that was taken from dark mode, it legitimately hurts my eyes to look at it. So I don't know if I'm just like built different in a not good way or if I'm just used to it, but I think that's crazy. 
You don't think that dark mode is easier on your eyes? I I use dark mode. I would take a brighter. Occasionally for things at like night, if I'm staring into my screen at night, and the contrast of like light mode is coming on, I'll like dim the dim the phone. Or you know, like when some of the cars for your your dash, like if it, when it gets dark, the maps will turn to dark mode. That's nice. But just in general, like in a well lit room, I don't want to be reading on dark mode. My car is so old that like there's no. There's no like different. Well, for like, you get rentals. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's 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 okay. when I notice how old my car is when I when I rent a car. <laughs> I feel like I'm driving a spaceship sometimes. Yes, that's definitely true. That is the nice thing about rentals. You can kind of. Uh, how often do you get upgraded in rentals? Just randomly. I feel like every every time. I would say it's like a forty percent chance I'm getting a an upgrade when I don't do anything for it. So I've gotten lucky. Yeah, every now and then, but it's usually if I'm traveling for work, like it's just me. Like, well, I don't know, what do I care? If I have a whole family with me, sure, it's great to have a bigger mm. car or something. But if it's just yeah. me, I don't know. Give me, give me whatever the easiest thing is. I want the easiest thing to park, to be honest. But I'm yes. kind of with you. I don't yeah. really need some fancy car. Okay, well, it's enough of my chit chat. Um, you guys, let us know if you're dark mode or light mode fans. If if this is a crazy take from me, or if I'm just overreacting to something I've seen online. But where do you want to start today, Ben? We've got a lot of actual baseball news that have happened in the past week since we released episode 76. We've got some extensions in pro ball. We've got news about the Orioles' ownership changing. We've got a trade. We've got our rankings update. We can go in any direction that you want. And it is February 1st. It's a new month. So take us take us where you will. Yeah, what were your thoughts on the Colt Keith contract extension? Um, I see. I, I know a lot of teams are trying right now, or trying, have been trying over the off season to lock up their young players to long term extensions. Some guys with um, maybe like a year or so of big league experience, and then there's prospects too. Obviously, Jackson Churio we saw got a. Uh, significantly larger deal than <laughs> Cole Keith did. Uh, he's a significantly better prospect too, but um, there's definitely a lot of a lot of teams around the league that are trying to do these deals with a lot of their, especially their young position prospects who are in the upper levels of the minors right now, even if it doesn't necessarily make its way out into the uh, public. But uh, it was, I think it's six years for Keith and guarantees him $28.6 million mm-hmm. over the course of that extension for, uh, you know, a guy who's, I, I think a very good prospect, maybe not. I mean, he's number 28 on our top 100, which, you know, again, is a, a very good prospect. If you want to call it great, that's fine, but also not, you know, a top 10 uh, premier uh, elite of the elite type guy do, do you feel like he left too much on the table or or you like the deal for him uh, or from the team's perspective i mean i don't know for like for me for the team's perspective it's hard to dislike the contract like even if colt keith ends up becoming a yeah. total bust like okay big deal like they're out <laughs> mm-hmm. uh what like five million a year pretty minimal risk to be taking for the club yeah, no, I I'm in agreement. I like it. I like it for both parties. Um, I mean, you could say that for Colt Keith, he's leaving a lot of money on the table. I think he was even asked about it, and he basically said like worst case scenario for me is 
I don't pan out um, and my whole family is set for life and I don't have to worry about anything financially. So like the, I think we talked about this with some of the more team friendly deals like Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies. Like it's hard to knock specifically a player locking in that sort of life-changing money for yourself, even if it is largely viewed as a discounted figure based on your talent. Uh, I think the same thing holds true here. I also agree entirely that if it doesn't work out for the team, like they're not going to be kicking themselves too much over this contract. I don't think the Phillies are really too upset that Scott Kingery's deal hasn't really worked out how they might've wanted it to work out. It's not a huge, it's not like some sort of albatross contract. Even if this deal maxes out, like it's a massive win for the Tigers. I mean, if he's maxing out everything, that means he's playing at a, an elite level. Um, there are three club options after the first year at first six years, I believe from 2030 to 2032, that could be exercised. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the only people who probably aren't going to like this deal are specific player agents and maybe the like leadership of the players association overall, just cause they want players like Colt Keith to get to free agency and to set new huge deals. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it's 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 a deal you want to make if you're the team that has Cold Keith. I do think that like while he isn't in that sort of elite top 10 sort of prospect tier, I do think that there is a fairly sizable drop off right around Keith or just after on our list. So I still think he's in the range of prospect that I would be very interested in specifically for hitters long term. I think I mentioned this on last week's episode talking about Kobe Mayo, how he was kind of inside that top 30 hitterish group that I just feel confident enough about the tools, the track record of that profile in general, Keith's skill set specifically, his proximity to the big leagues. Um, and I kind of like a lot of what the Tigers have been doing this offseason. And obviously in the American League Central, anything can happen. And I think if a, a few of their young players, Keith included, have strong years, um, they could be a, a surprisingly competitive team maybe depending on what your expectations are for them now so i think it's a fun deal um and this is you, you layer a couple of deals like this onto your team and all of a sudden if your players pan out you got a pretty fun young core that you can build around and um i mean this is what you want to do you want your teams to sign their young stud prospects you develop i mean i guess you can argue to the degree to which Colt Keith actually is a young stud prospect, but I think he would he'd be in that tier of player that that I'd definitely be interested in extending for me. Yeah, I think Scott Kingery, um, you know, whether it's him or you look at Jonathan Singleton, uh, when he signed his extension, geez, that was ten years ago now. Um, but those are those are some examples of players who did sign contract extensions when they were prospects and it ended up working out pretty well for the players and in Kingery's case like he was number 31 on our top 100 in 2018 Jonathan Singleton he did his extension in the middle of the season that year he, he came in at number 82 that year was number 27 by the end of the year you know if you want to look at it as like a midpoint I, I don't know exactly what our midseason ranking was uh, at the time but uh, maybe like number 50 or so. Um, so there's, uh, you know, some comparables there in terms of, okay, even if things of, of guys who did sign those extensions and it didn't work out and yeah, for the top, you know, certainly the top five, top 10, uh, even now to the top 25 prospects in baseball, if you look at the position prospects, the track record of those guys is very good. Uh, we have Keith just outside that range 
at 28. Um, and if you, you know, you study the history of players who are in that, you know, separate the pitchers because there's a different risk profile with them. But, uh, you know, players in that 20 to 40 group in our top 100, if you just look back at 2017, number 20, all right, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., different situation. He was coming off his age 17 season in rookie ball, but uh, 24, Manuel Margot, uh, 27, Lewis Brinson, 28, Francisco Mejia, 34, Kyle Lewis, 38, Tyler O'Neill, 39, Clint Frazier, 40, Franklin Barreto. Um, you know, other than, you know, set Vlad aside, um, you know, like Tyler O'Neill has done well for himself. Uh, Manuel Margot too. Like Margot's probably made, uh, I think his first six years, he made $13 million, signed a two-year extension after that. So 32 after eight years, Tyler O'Neill, his first six seasons has made, uh, or will make $16 million, uh, free agent after that. Uh, but the rest of those guys, I mean, they've had flashes. Kyle Lewis obviously won the uh, the BBWAA American League uh, Rookie of the Year award, but uh, other than that, hasn't been great. Probably made a few million. Uh, a lot of those other guys aren't making or didn't end up making the the money that Keith is guaranteed. So, um, yeah, I, I think he certainly has a chance to end up being a, a great value for the Tigers and end up being underpaid uh, if everything clicks for him. But uh, there's also a lot of, you know, there's still a lot of risk in this group of players too. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, maybe we can talk about some of the areas where we are most concerned with Keith. I, I like the fact that he is a very offense first profile at this point. Um, but some of the players that you mentioned that maybe you wouldn't be as excited about painting out uh, did have defensive questions and they just wound up not hitting as much as you expected. And if that's the case and you're already near the bottom of the defensive spectrum, it's really hard for you to provide value. And so then the contract can look pretty, uh, I, I don't, I don't think this contract can ever look terrible. Um, just given what I was saying about it earlier, but it, it could just be, um, not giving you much value at all. If he just isn't the hitter we expect him to be, I think he would have to be significantly worse for that to happen. Um, but I'm curious what you think of him as a defender, and where he fits into this Detroit infield with, with him and Jace Young, neither of whom are sort of elite defenders, but I might be more on the higher side for Keith, just athletically. I feel like he's a, a little bit of an underrated athlete. I'll be curious to see where he's used, how that infield looks, but the fact that he's got a chance for plus hitting ability and plus power has me fairly excited about this. And I think looking at our top 100, the players who I would be interested in extending if i was a team i think the list basically stops right behind colt keith it's like guys like chase the jet williams and matt shaw who's at 31 i i think beyond that i think yeah it's fine you don't really need to try and lock them up but i i really like the idea of locking any of those guys ranked 31 and up on our board as hitters specifically obviously i'm sure the teams would be excited about that as well but you can't just guarantee you're locking up a guy but what are your thoughts on detroit infield Keith's um, defensive profile, uh, are you skeptical of it more so than me and, and just how that could look for Detroit in the next year, next few years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think the reviews on his defense have been glowing by, by, by any means. Um, I think it's maybe a below average defender. 
at third base with some risky ultimately ends up going to first base um a, a lot to like offensively with him but uh, yeah i think there's some pretty significant defensive question marks with him too yep um i mean jace young they both have some similarities again i guess i'll just be curious how how this is going to unfold because these are all like near near big league proximity guys i mean jason or, or colt keith at this point i feel like he's got to be starting opening day right is that too aggressive i mean i think given the contract he just signed they'll probably have him up it, it would be uh, very weird for him to sign that contract and be starting like triple a or something yeah i mean i you know they could i guess do that it probably makes you know with the prospect promotion incentive too probably even more yeah uh, literal incentive to mm-hmm. keep them uh with the big league club yeah that's a good call i mean that's another benefit of of the ppi program in general just having no doubts about those players being pulled up and again like another incentive for the players to sign them i know i think jared kelnick talked about this as well like he felt like he was kept down because he didn't sign a team-friendly deal like this certainly if you're putting pen to paper it's going to encourage the big league team to actually get you up and uh get you in the big leagues but it is it's not a crazy sample of upper minors time i mean he he just has the one season with double a and triple a experience i don't know if 126 games at double a or higher feels like not a lot to you for a 21 year old who's hit as well as he has um but again we have seen the acceleration of players in the minor league system in recent years and there have been players who have been moved a lot quicker than this yeah i don't (laughs) he certainly has merited the uh promotions that he's Hmm. that he's gotten um yeah i mean I, i just I think, yeah, I really like the deal for the Tigers, and I think it makes sense for Keith, given the given the risk and just given what players who we have mm-hmm. ranked comparably to him historically have produced or or not produced yep. in the big leagues. I mean, the marginal utility of being guaranteed twenty eight million dollars or twenty eight million dollars in salary, which mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you know, if he hangs around the big leagues for parts of three four seasons and then washes out you know he should still walk away with at least probably 10 million dollars after his career is done to um hopefully never Mm -hmm. have to work again in his life if he doesn't want to it's a you know a short window for players to maximize the value uh, or maximize their earning power and and he was a fifth round pick. I mean, he signed for five hundred thousand, which is a, a decent chunk of money, but he wasn't some top ten overall pick who's signing for a five million plus deal. So that could be a factor for this as well. Yeah. I mean, look at like Reese Hoskins, who, you know, just signed as a free agent this year. He made over his career, he made twenty six has made twenty six million dollars so far up until you know he signed his free agent contract before he mm. uh before this season and he's been you know I, I don't think keith is quite as limited maybe defensively as, as reese hoskins but um you know 30 home run hitter 125 ops plus for his career draws a lot of walks he is a limited defender uh, and and colt keith is you know he got to the big leagues or he's gonna go to the big leagues at a younger age than hoskins but still He's he's guaranteeing himself what Reeks Hoskins has already made through his career, and if it does work out, yeah, he's still going to get more money, but yeah. just not quite. He's he is capping the upside on what ultimately mm-hmm. he, he could have gotten if everything clicks, but the yep. the the marginal utility of 
have, making sure you're getting at least that that first twenty eight million dollars is really what makes the difference. I, I always feel. <laughs> yeah, your your experience has told you that. So yeah, exactly. If we're looking at the deal um, getting extended out again, three club options that take it through the twenty thirty two season. Um, this year he will be entering his age 22 season. Um, so eight years from now, he'll be again, not again, but he'll be in his early thirties. I'm not sure if that'll be his age 30 or age 31 season when he could be, uh, eligible for free agency, but you're setting yourself up for another payday with this contract, just given the fact that he's getting to the major leagues as quickly as he has. Um, so I think that's another, like, yeah, maybe you'll get there sooner if you don't sign this deal, but the, it's hard to overstate how important just guaranteeing locking in that money is. And the fact that if he plays well and everything goes well, we've seen some huge contracts for players entering free agency around age 30. Um, so he'll have a chance for more if, if things go well. So I, I find it hard to criticize really on any level again i feel like you have to be a, a specific agent or rep in the players association to not like this contract so that's kind of all i have on this deal do you want to move on to uh, a jerry depoto trade the man loves to trade a jerry depoto trade no what <laughs> yeah the twins and the mariners they made a trade um let's pull up the the full deal here um the mariners oh, hey, traded deal Yes, they traded for Jorge Polanco. Four players were heading back to the Twins in this deal. Um, the Twins received Gabby Gonzalez, who's probably the headliner. They received right-hander Justin Topa. They received right-hander Anthony DeSclafani. And they received right-handed pitching prospect Darren Bowen. Uh, what were your thoughts on this? We have a full write-up on the site from JJ. Uh, I know Jeff is a fan of Darren Bowen, but what did you think about this deal initially and after you had some time to um, maybe let it sink in a little bit? any any thoughts to pull from it yeah i think gonzalez is the um you know the biggest prospect in the deal there are a lot of things to like with him uh there are also a lot of holes too uh what you like is that he hit 348 403 530 and 73 games last year at low a when he was 19 years old uh that really just built upon what we had seen the year before he had a great year in the acl and then he had a great year in the DSL before that when he made his pro debut. He has big raw power, great arm strength from right field. Uh, there is feel for hitting that he has shown throughout most of his career, too, to go with that power. Uh, the downside is that when he did get promoted, when he got to high A, he he stopped hitting. <laughs> he hit a wall. <laughs> it was 216, 290, 387, and 43 games uh, in in Everett, uh, and then the long-term concern really is the, uh, especially on the offensive side, is the approach. So um, extremely aggressive uh, swinger. He expands the strike zone. He swings early in counts at pitches that he should not swing at. He hits that, um, you know, that compact, thicker body type, but it's short arms, short levers to the ball, so it's not a long swing itself yeah. uh it's not crazy swing and miss but I, I would like to see him be able to add a little bit more loft to consistently uh to consistently elevate elevate the ball and fully tap into the power that he does have but the main thing is going to be improving his plate discipline that's going to be the biggest key and that's not something that's easy to do so uh, if if the twins are able to help him 
take that next step, um, that would be huge. Uh, but it's also possible that maybe the Mariners just sold high on him before mm-hmm. he does get to the upper levels and more advanced pitchers are able to exploit the weaknesses that he does have in his approach. Yeah, that's a pretty in-depth breakdown of, of Gonzalez. He's intriguing to me. Um, I'm also intrigued by Bowen, who does not have the sort of prospect pedigree uh, that Gonzalez does have at this point. He was a 13th rounder in 2022. Uh, Jeff really likes the the life on his fastball and the athlete that he is. Uh, he's made some changes with his breaking ball. He's throwing a cutter and a slider at this point. Um, last year in 2023, he was in low A. He struck out 25% of the batters he faced. Um, so he's an intriguing arm. I think both the Twins and the Mariners have actually done a pretty good job IDing college pitchers specifically late in the draft and and I think developing them well. Definitely the Mariners have, have a good track record of developing pitchers now. So I'll be curious to see what Bowen turns into um, going from a, a good developing organization to another order that I think has done a solid job as well. Um, and then you get some some big league pitching depth with Topa and with DeSclafani. Um not sure how exciting those two are, but I, I think I have a lot of confidence in what the Twins have been able to do recently in terms of their pro moves, their trades on the professional side. I really like the the Pablo Lopez deal, obviously, from a year ago. Uh, so I'm probably pretty excited about this one from their perspective. Do we think Polanco is a good enough return for Seattle for this package? Do you think it was a fair deal? Do you lean towards one team or the other uh, in this one? I, I feel myself leaning slightly towards the Twins. Um, but I also could just be underrating how solid and reliable Polanco has been throughout his career. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like Polanco still. Yeah, like you said, he's been a very, uh, just a very good hitter for a lot of years. Um, you know, he is going into his age 30 season. So <laughs> there's definitely some uh, risk that the wheels could always fall off. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I I like that um, for for Seattle to be able to um, add him and and look like it's I don't think it's the front office's decision in Seattle right now where they're like we don't we don't want to go out and spend money on free no I'm sure they would love to go out and <laughs> spend money mm-hmm. yeah. um, on free agents a lot of their moves definitely feel way. like they've been hampered by a lot of restrictions in terms of how much they can actually afford to spend. Yeah, so it's like, all right, well, we need to upgrade, and we're not going to just go out and spend because ownership won't let us. So, um, I mean, I certainly understand the frustration from Mariners fans with that, but uh, I imagine it's, you know, I imagine it's the same frustration from DePoto and everybody else in that front office, whether they're willing to, you know, publicly say it or not. I mean, well, speaking of frustration with fans with ownership, I feel like we have to talk about the Baltimore news, which is that there's going to be new ownership in Baltimore. John Andrelos has agreed to sell the Orioles to a group led by the Carlisle Group, which sounds like just a weird sentence, a group led by another group. Co-founder David Rubenstein is the big name in this ownership group that's coming together to buy the Orioles. Um, they've been valued at $1.725 billion. Uh, a lot of people in Baltimore are excited because I think the Angelos family has earned a pretty negative reputation given some of the things that they've done in recent years, given some of the comments uh, that have been made, given the restrictions and the lack of spending you've seen on the Major League roster. Uh, a lot of people have also criticized the fact that this is just another private equity group, another kind of hedge fund group coming into baseball. 
Um, what are your thoughts on this? Are you, would you be excited if you're an Orioles fan? Is it hard to get any worse? Do you think this could get worse? Just general thoughts. Uh, because I think at a certain point we were viewing Angelus as maybe the worst owner in baseball. I mean, whoever is going to buy your favorite team is probably going to be a billionaire. Like <laughs> there's, there's only a certain number of people on the planet uh, that have their money. So I don't understand maybe the, <laughs> what, what it like, what is the concern just that they come from a private equity background and that has a negative connotation to it in some people's minds. It, it's exactly that. Yeah. I, it probably is the same people who thought it was terrible when Steve Cohen bought the Mets. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, these, these are the kinds of people who make billions of dollars that can buy major league teams and have plenty of money left over for other uh, uh, liquid needs or beyond needs, obviously, <laughs> in their lives. So, uh, yeah, I, I think if you're an Orioles fan, you've got to be uh, excited at the same time. Like, you don't, you know, you don't, we don't know how this new ownership group is going to behave they could you know they could suck just as bad as the last ownership group right? like it, it or it could start off great and then they lose interest or, or just don't want to spend as much and don't want to invest as much money in the team after the first couple of years so but I, I think it probably makes even a lot more sense now looking at how the orioles have not, not really spent much in free agency in recent years because it does make it a lot more appealing to sell your team for a you know for a potential buyer of a club to not have a lot of big long-term contracts on the books um so where it seems like an obvious decision for the orioles to you know try to go out and sign especially more pitching to supplement the young nucleus that they have in their lineup uh, all right now this is starting to add up a little bit more why yeah allies and the front office there is probably under some restrictions from ownership. So uh, just to be able to have that out of the way, have a new group come in um, one that you know, it seems like they have pretty deep pockets to be determined how much they're going to spend or what kind of, um, you know, how hands-on <laughs> or, or um, <laughs> micromanaging they're going to be in baseball decisions that's those are all big questions uh, i'm sure the orioles front office uh, folks are wondering the same things but I, I think it has to be a good day right now if you're an oriole fan yeah i tend to agree entirely i don't know how you can go from an ownership that is largely just detested by the fan base you find out that ownership group is selling to a new owner um and you, you can't be anything other than excited until proven otherwise really i mean that i think that's part of being a fan um, you have to just hope that it's going to be better than it was in the past. And honestly, the bar was fairly low. So if you get a new ownership group that is more willing to invest money in the team, you already have a an excellent young major league core. You've got an excellent wave of prospect talent on the way waiting to reinforce. You've got a great player development group. You've got a really smart front office um, that has done a lot of things well on the amateur side internationally. Um, and just seems to largely run the organization well on that side. So if you basically just add some money to all of that and you get a, uh, a new change in ownership, you, you have to be a very pessimistic person, I think, to for your first reaction to be, oh, no, private equity. I'm a little bit iffy about this. I think it, excitement is normal. It makes sense. 
Um, so we'll see what happens. I'm not sure how much more we can add to this. I guess it's not technically official yet. It has to be approved by MLB owners. I imagine it will. Um, but yeah, no more thoughts on that. Yeah, for me. yeah, yeah. I mean, the good thing is it's not like they're going to come in and have to reshape and rebuild this organization. Uh, it's not like they have to go out and find a good GM, hire a new manager, all this other stuff, rebuild the farm system. They're inheriting the executive of the year who's running their organization. Um, they've drafted well. They've started to scout well internationally. They have uh, the best farm system in baseball um, and have consistently had <laughs> the best farm system in baseball. Adley, Gunner graduating. Um, it's not to say they can't screw it up, but like, <laughs> like th there's not too much I think they can do to suddenly uh, screw everything up. Mm. Like they're not tasked with trying to build something from scratch yeah. here. It's it, they're walking. It's a little different from a, from new ownership in Oakland. It's a little bit different than that. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, any other thoughts on Orioles ownership MLB stuff before we turn to maybe some amateur news from the site? Yeah, big big draft rankings update. Top top two hundred mm -hmm. prospects for the twenty twenty four draft as the as we get ready for the season to start. Yeah, every year I feel like around this time we we, we do an update overall. Uh, I think in the past we've maybe started with a top two hundred in January or February. It's gotten a little bit more iterative over the past few years. We go from hundred that was updated last fall to two hundred. Um, so there's not a ton of changes in the one to 100 range, but there are some tweaks. We're still talking with scouts over the offseason, still looking into these players, trying to balance profiles. Again, we mentioned that there has been some actual activity on fields. I think one of the biggest risers in this update uh, in the top 100 range is Duncan Marston, uh, who's a right-handed pitcher at Harvard-Westlake. Um, I mean, that school has pumped out tons of pitching talent specifically, but is also the high school that Bryce Rayner attends, who's already in the first round range, I talked to some scouts who think he's like a locked in first round talent already, given what he's shown early this year, just throwing a fastball that's touched 99, great body, good delivery, flashing a good breaking ball. Um, so he's like the biggest name to know on this update uh, in terms of riser. I'm curious if you saw him as an underclassman, Ben. I know he had some time that he missed with surgery with Tommy John, but it sounds like when he was younger, earlier on in his high school career, he was really trending up. Um, and he's doing that once again. Uh, we've got a new number one, although I think the class still really lacks a consensus top talent. It's hard for that to really change uh, in the offseason. Uh, but J.J. Weatherholt is now leading the list. He flips with Nick Kurtz, who's now at number two. I'll be very curious if we get a number one player established in this class this spring. One of the biggest criticisms of this class is like there's not a lot of definition at the top. Um, but... It, if anything, it's going to make for a fun horse race because I think the class is wide open at the top. In terms of pitching on both sides, it's fairly wide open in both demographics. There are a lot of talented pitchers, but there's no clear, like, obvious number one arm at either level. So I think depending on how people come out and throw, whether they're showing better stuff, whether they're showing new pitches, whether they're showing better results, um, if they back up, like, it'll be very interesting I think it's just wide open at this point, and I'm mostly just ready for the season to actually start so we can actually start seeing some real games and some maybe more substantial information instead of just what's happening over the offseason. What did this bullpen session look like? What did this player look like in fall ball? But um, we're close. We're very close now. So what was the reason that 
you jumped JJ Weatherholt uh, from West Virginia ahead of uh, Nick Kurtz for the number one spot. Yeah, I think it was just a combination of just getting more feedback from the industry, looking over the profiles. And I think the fact that JJ Weatherholt is moving over to shortstop this spring is going to help his case. Um, a lot of the critiques that scouts have and scouting directors in particular have with this class is that a lot of the players are battling corner profiles um, or non-premium up the middle profiles. Like we've never had a second baseman go 1-1 overall in the draft. And so that is going to be a knock against both J.J. Weatherholt and Travis Bazana at Oregon State, who is one of the cover boys on our college preview issue, which I think looks pretty awesome. Um, but the fact that Weatherhold, it sounds like he's playing to play shortstop. He's going to have a chance to move into that position. If he shows this spring that he's like a, a really solid defender, I, I would be surprised if he turned out to be this really flashy above average, like impact defender. Um, because if he was that player, I feel like he would have already been playing the position, but that the fact that his, his offensive profile is as well-rounded as Nick Kurtz, the fact that he has more wood bat track record than Kurtz, I think we're just kind of points in his favor that over the offseason, after thinking about it, after talking it through with people on staff, like we're, we're kind of just putting a player there and hoping someone will move into like the actual one, one instead of like a de facto one, one. Um, so those are some of the elements as well as like looking into the college first base track record up top. It's not the greatest track record. That's not to say that Nick Kurtz can't be an outlier. Um, but those are all sort of the factors that led to that change. Although I hope the change is not, reflective of me being like massively confident that Weatherholt is like the clear one one because I don't think that's the case and and I hope my talking around it right here has has made that clear I think there are a number yeah. of players that right now have real cases and it's a matter of like what happens this spring more than anything all right so we'll put Weatherholt with the Guardians then um <laughs> what about uh I mean with with Kurtz is there are there cons any holes in his offensive game or is he a uh, are, are people really all in on the mm. hit power combination and it's just a matter of first base risk with him yeah i think i mean you could you could ask the same question a few years ago about spencer torkelson and andrew vaughn and jacob barry and i really don't think that you would have had too many critiques or too many question marks about the holes in their game like none of these players at the time had swing questions they all had significant performance at power programs. They all had the ability to hit for hour average, get on base. They showed loud power. They were all like mostly first base profiles. A couple of these players played other positions and didn't look great there. Um, so they're mostly getting drafted up top based on their bat. And I don't think any of those players, if you redraft, will go or would go in the spots they went with. So like me saying now that Nick Kurtz has no holes in his offensive profile is one thing. But, but the bar, I think, for hitting at that position is just so high. I mean, maybe the one factor that Nick Kurtz has going for him that those other first basemen didn't have collectively is Nick Kurtz does have the prototypical first base size. He is a lefty left or a left left profile. I think those are two points that are, are really going to help him there. I also think he's probably the best athlete of that group of players. And so there is some thinking that Nick Kurtz is he moves well enough to maybe try a corner outfield position. Um, and I, I think it's probably pretty safe to say that he's definitely the best defensive first baseman of that group. So there is a little bit more 
I think he does a little bit more as an athlete, as a defender than any of those other players. But I just think that the, the track record of that profile college first baseman specifically is just so dicey that I think it might lead some teams to be a little bit more concerned about it. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think just the names you rattled off. I'm sure people are listening and thinking, "Ooh, like, <laughs> not yeah. the, like, like Spencer Torkelson was one one. <laughs> Andrew Vaughn went third overall in an, an excellent draft class. We just did the redraft for Andrew Vaughn in 2019, and I think I had him going around 20. And you have a lot of up the middle athletes that are going earlier than him in that redraft. Uh, Jacob Berry obviously really struggled um, after being selected. Uh, with the Marlins, I'm not sure if he was six or eight, somewhere in the, the top ten range. Um, but yeah, it's just a it's a scary profile. It, it's funny if you look at the, like the best first basemen who are drafted in the bonus pool era. It's like Matt Olson and Pete Alonso, and they were both second rounders. Um, so I think there's some thinking that if you're going to get a first baseman, you may as well wait, like go for the premium up the middle profiles. And I think that specifically go for the premium up the middle profiles. That's what you want to do, but it might be the case where those profiles just don't exist this year at the top. Like if you want those profiles, you're looking at guys like Mike Sirota, who's at Northeastern and really doesn't have any holes. We have him five overall on the board, but it's a small school profile. He doesn't hit the ball as hard as you'd typically associate with like a one, one player. He didn't have that sort of upside. You have Vance Honeycutt, who, who certainly does have prototypical 1-1 tools, athleticism, profile. He's a great defender and center. He's got power and speed. And then you look and he's never hit over 300 in a single season. And he has significant just hit tool questions. I think he addressed some of the swing and miss questions year over year from his freshman season to his sophomore year. He struck out at a 30% rate um, his first year. Then he cut that to 20%, which is significant, but he also didn't have nearly the performance in terms of home runs, in terms of average, in terms of getting on base. Um, so I think there are real questions about what sort of real hitter is he. Um, and then you've got a guy like Seaver King who's going to be playing in D1 for the first time. He doesn't have the typical size that you look for at 1-1. So I think there are just a lot of questions here. You don't have a Dylan Cruz or a White Langford who are these sort of typical toolsy, powerful, impactful players that you could easily project them at premium profiles moving forward, like an up the middle profile, uh, and also feel confident about the bat. So it, this is part of the reason why scouts seem to think this is a bit of a down year so far. Well, and then you haven't even, I mean, we haven't even talked about any high school players yet too, because when you talk about, you know, premium position guys, uh, all right, well, we're, that's, you know, there's no high school players who are even in our top 10 right now. Um, mm -hmm. And in, as far as premium position guys, I mean, I, I really love PJ Morlando. I think he's probably the most complete hitter in the class in terms of hitting ability, uh, you know, strike zone judgment, power, big power from the left side. Um, but it's probably corner outfield or first base. I mean, I think he'd be a very good defensive first baseman, but it's not that up the middle type guy. I mean, the the guy for that probably would be Connor Griffin. Right, whether it's he's played shortstop, played center field, mid nineties on the mound too. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think he probably has as much upside as anybody if everything clicks, but not the polish of uh, Morlando or, or some of the other, uh, you know, certainly like the college hitters who are mm -hmm. ahead of him, and and even the rest of the high school guys who are um, in this first round 
mix right now. A lot of them are not uh, guys who, you know, some of them have have or currently play shortstop but are not necessarily guys who you uh, expect to stick there. So it seems like both from the college side and high school as well that, yeah, those premium position guys, especially, you know, shortstop, center field or, yeah. or collegiate. Like catcher, think of, it seems like it's lighter. Think of all the college shortstops we had just last year. Forget about Dylan Cruz. Forget about um, – Wyatt Langford, forget about Max Clark and, and Walker Jenkins. You've got mm-hmm. guys like Tommy Troy. You've got Matt Shaw. You you have uh, Jacob Gonzalez, who is a multi-time Team USA player with left power. Wilson. You have Jacob, exactly, Jacob Wilson, who was the first player outside of that elite top five group to go. Um, you had other players who weren't shortstops necessarily, but you felt good about them playing the left side of the infield. And, and Braden Taylor, you felt really good about the hit tool. You just don't have a lot of those players this year. And I think for the high school hitting demographic specifically, it might be the weakest demographic of this draft class relative to a normal year. I think yeah, that's... last year, last year we had what Colt Emerson, Arjun Namala, um, George yeah. Lombard Jr. You had this whole wave of shortstops that you kind of had them muddled together. Walker Martin would be included there. Um, Rock Chalowski included Kevin there. McGonagall. Yeah. You had this, this huge wave of players who were like fringe first round type George Lombard. Did you mention him? Like mm-hmm. just a huge, a huge tier. You have some guys that like maybe fit in that tier this year. Guys like Owen Pano, guys like Charlie Bates, um, Carter Johnson. Yeah. Carter. I think Carter Johnson is maybe the most exciting of those, but none of them have the combination of like tool set and conviction and sticking at shortstop. Um, or, or just conviction and hit tool. I think Carter Johnson maybe has that conviction, the hit tool more than any of these other players. The other guys either didn't perform great last summer or you can pretty easily project him to move off the position. Um, so yeah, it's a really, it's a really suspect year for the high school hitters in particular. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like what other areas of the class to go into here. Um, but yeah, well, if, gonna, you, uh, if you're looking at, if you wanted like one specific demographic to try and ballpark, uh, strength for a draft class or the perceived strength of a draft class at the time, I think it would be with like, what is your capital of high school shortstops? And that is typically a, a, a fairly decent gauge or, or maybe just like, what is the, what is the shortstop talent overall? Um, because we had both college and high school last year and this year we really don't. I mean, I'm trying to think of the one locked in shortstop profile in the first round just scanning down our list and i don't think you have a single one like guys like anthony silva is probably your best defensive shortstop we have him 30 right now so that i wouldn't consider that like a locked in first round profile he has some hitting questions griffo farrell who was the team usa shortstop which is typically like a a pretty money designation for a player and it indicates good things like his tool set is not like a typical first round tool set, there's a real chance he moves off shortstop and plays second. The same is true for Carter Johnson. He could move off shortstop and play second or third. Kalen Culpepper might have the best tools to play shortstop outside of Silva of this group. He played third base last year, didn't play shortstop for Team USA. Like he's going to be playing shortstop this spring, so maybe that could change. Um, moving further up the board, Bryce Rayner, a lot of people like him better as a pitcher, and people who do like him as a hitter also acknowledge like he's a risk to move to third. Um, Caleb Bonimer, same thing, risk to move to third. He played a lot of third already. 
um, last summer and fall on the showcase circuit. And then the, the only other player um, is Seaver King. And it sounds like he's going to play center field this year in deference to Merrick Houston at Wake Forest, who is a very talented defender in his own right and is eligible for the 2025 class. It's King and then it's uh, J.J. Weatherholt, who will be playing shortstop full-time for the first time in his college career this spring after playing third and then second base. So, I mean, I really don't know that you can convincingly tell me there is a guaranteed shortstop profile who also is like a lot to go in the first round right now, which is crazy. I think Leo Dallas DeVry might be the best shortstop sign <laughs> this year as an amateur. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's a good a good take. What about so what what puts <clears throat> so you you put Weatherholt at one, Travis Bazana at Oregon State, not too far behind them. There's a small gap. What's yeah? What what puts Weatherholt just like a tick ahead of Bazana for you? Yeah, I don't view much of any gap at all, really. I mean, in terms of voting that we had for preseason All-American teams, those uh, are coming out in the college preview issue. I think they're coming out um, on the site. It's like a slight preference for for J.J. Weatherholt. Uh, for me specifically, I think the way Weatherholt does it is more typical, which whether or as not a, that— As a hitter, you mean? As a hitter, and honestly, as a defender as well. Like, Bazana is a fantastic athlete. He's got a superlative track record of hitting in college and in wood bat leagues, but the swing itself is a little bit more unorthodox. That will matter to some teams. It won't matter to others. I think even outside of like how it looks, if the swing is aesthetically pleasing, I think Weatherholt has done a little bit more damage in game, both with wood and with metal. Um, he has all fields juice. Bazana's in game power has mostly been to the pull side. Weatherholt has a slight edge in terms of overall contact rates, although these are two of the best pure contact hitters in the class. I think defensively, I mean, Weatherholt is going to get more of a chance to improve his reputation as a defender just by nature of moving positions. Um, but even then, like Bazana throws from this awkward low slot sidearm position quite a bit. It, it hasn't really hampered him, but I know that that has been raised as like, hmm, that's kind of odd to me before. I don't think it's something to get too hung up on because everything I've heard is he's a really good defender and a really great athlete there. Um, but I think those are maybe some of the little nitpickier things that I personally lean more towards JJ Weatherholt. And I think while there are people in the industry who will take Bazana over Weatherholt, I think more at this point lean towards Weatherholt because of those things. He also, I mean, just led all D1 hitters last year in hitting. He was the best hitter with Team USA. I mean, you could say that Travis Bazana was the best hitter in the Cape. So, both of them have great track records, but I think some of those little edge cases I would put personally towards Weatherholt. Okay. Um, we have, so we have four players um, from Wake Forest in the top 15. Mm. Number one, why are you so biased toward Wake Forest? <laughs> Me, a noted Wake Forest fan, UNC alum. And then, and then two, I guess, you know, looking at pitchers like, you know, we have a couple two-way guys, right? Pretty high in Jack Caglione from Florida, mm. Braden Montgomery from Texas A&M. But after them, the next two pitchers are Wake Forest lefty, Josh Hartle, Wake Forest right-handed pitcher, uh, Chase Burns, transfer mm. coming in from Tennessee. What what for you puts Hartle ahead of Burns right now? Obviously, they're very close and where they're ranked. Yeah, I think it's same same kind of deal as Weatherholt and Bazana. Just some feedback from scouting directors over this offseason seems to indicate a very slight preference for Hartle over Burns. I think 
like Burns falling outside of the top 10 in this update. He's previously number seven. I think that more represents us being a little too gung-ho about Burns rather than like anything Burns himself has done to fall down a board. Like it's mostly just kind of course cracking for our previous ranking. Uh, it feels like the, the hitters need to be top 10. There are some question marks for the pitchers. So we're starting the pitchers off um, a little lower down. I think with Hartle, he is maybe the safest college pitching profile in the class. An another player who has a case for that tag is Drew Beam at Tennessee, who we also raised up a little bit in this update. He moved up 10 spots from 34 to 24. Um, but for Hartle specifically, he's got pedigree going back to his high school days. He's got a great delivery. He's got a great body. Um, he's got a pretty diverse pitch mix, and he is posted as a starter. He, he is sort of that like really safe college starting profile that you feel great that you're going to get a big leaguer and it's just a question of like what the impact is what the overall upside is with him it wouldn't shock me at all if Hartle got passed over this spring as pitchers who we currently have behind him could be Burns um, who just have more electric stuff if they start to address some of the question marks they have as pitchers whether that's command whether that's a third pitch whether that's simply being healthy and posting like a guy like Jonathan Santucci at Duke, I think you can make a case that Santucci has better stuff across the board than Hartle. He's just been injured in the past. He's got split time as a starter and a reliever in the past. And uh, scouts really just want to see these guys post. And I think there's just a lot of confidence in what Hartle ha has already done to this point. Um, you don't really have to change too much of what he's doing right now to get a really good quality pitcher. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there will be some teams that are more in on him because they're not as worried about his fastball shape. I think there will be some teams that just don't want a, like, sinker pitcher who is already throwing his fastball as little as he is in college. I, I think they just won't want to mess with a profile like that. Um, but there is this cluster of college pitchers in the middle of the first round that it's not a ton of separation. And Hartle's track record is just kind of, like, same with Weatherholt. It's kind of the he's done a little bit more to put himself there to start out the year. And we'll see what guys like Burns and Hagen Smith and uh, Brody Brecht, who sounds like he's had a phenomenal off season, what those guys do. Um, it could easily change. And I expect to have a ton of movement on this board this spring, but that's kind of my thinking with Hartle right now. What are the concerns with Chase Burns that scouts want to see mm. addressed? Cause when, you know, we talked about the, you know, some of the, deficiencies in terms of the premium position players for both college hitters and high school hitters in this class. And then, you know, look, we have Burns ranked as the top, you know, the number one, just, you know, straight right-handed pitcher, you know, not, not, not a, excluding the two-way guys, but um, the yeah. number one right-handed pitcher in the country. But I would think when there was, you know, when there's this much concern about the quality of the hitters, the position players at the top, that the pitchers would tend to move up even higher, uh, but it doesn't seem to be the case with the college pitchers this year. So what, what do yeah. they want to see from Burns to, I think, yeah, I think so to address that first question you had, like why, why haven't the pitchers moved up? I, I think collectively this college pitching group has a lot more reliever risk than you typically see with like the elite starting pitcher or the elite college pitchers in a class, like some of the walk rates that these guys have, are pretty scary for players that you're projecting in the first round. Um, I'm working on a piece about this specifically. I think it'll be on the website early next week. 
um, just kind of address like what is a typical college starting pitcher profile and, and why is there so much reliever risk? But I think that's part of it with Burns. He actually is one of the few players whose walk rates have been solid, um, but he did spend time last spring with Tennessee in a reliever role. It was kind of a weird piggybacking reliever role with Chase Dollander that I, I wasn't as concerned about, but I know some people in the industry just want to see him own the starter role. Because going back to Chase Burns' high school days, there were questions about whether or not he was a starter or a reliever. His control was more scattered than I think it's improved. It probably is still a little bit more scattered than scouts want to see now. I think there could be some concern that because his pure stuff is just so good and his slider, which which gets to like 90 miles per hour, is so good that he doesn't really need to be precise with that pitch at this level. He can kind of just overpower hitters. Um, he has some length to his arm action that scouts have never really loved. So those are some of the question marks I know that the industry has. He, he's at Wake now, which has a pretty phenomenal reputation it, just in terms of developing arms. I think they're among three or four teams that has a pretty easy case for most talented pitching staff in the nation. So it'll be very interesting to see what Burns and Hartle and even Michael Massey, who we have ranked a little bit further down the board, what those guys are looking like, what what the pecking order turns out to be with those players. Um, you mentioned all the Wake Forest players we have on the board. That that team is going to be scouted so often yeah, this hard spring. To, like, hard, to figure, hard to figure why they're the number one team in the country in our top 25 right now. <laughs> yeah, and I think Wake being this good, bringing players in like Chase Burns and Seaver, Seaver King, getting impact transfers like that on top of doing an excellent job recruiting in-state. Um, they're a powerhouse at this point, and they're a, a primary reason why this might be one of the most talented years for North Carolina specifically ever. I was I was talking to a scout um, just last week about this, and, and he kind of brought it up unprompted. He was like, yeah, this is like the most loaded I've ever seen in this state. You've got Wake Forest. You've got Vance Honeycutt at UNC. Uh, you've got Jacob Cozart at NC State. You've got Santucci, Fran Oshel at Duke. Um, ECU has guys like it, 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 it's always a good state because there's so many good colleges in general. Um, but even with that kind of high bar, uh, and some of the, the prep players in the state, it's, it's just a phenomenal year for North Carolina. Um, and not, not a great year for me to be living, not in North Carolina. Cause a few years ago, being in the triangle, this would have been amazing. So I'll have to make a few trips down to Winston-Salem this year. Is that correlation or causation? There? <laughs> and honestly, it's starting to feel like causation at this point every time i cover teams they don't seem like they're very good i covered the braves and the padres and they're both terrible um then i leave and they become good so maybe that's the case in north carolina i left and the state decided to just get epic well next year their high school class is going to be stacked to coy james at shortstop Mm. uh, josh hammonds another wake forest commit uh right-handed pitcher um tyler baird is, is there too so yeah, that's a it's a strong. <laughs> it's going to be strong again next year, at least on the high school side. I think uh, in in like my head, I think of the state power rankings for amateur talent as some combination of Florida, California, uh, vying for one. Whoever's not one there is two. Texas three, and then traditionally, I I think of Georgia as being four, and North Carolina being five. I wonder if North Carolina has done enough to kind of supplant Georgia because Georgia typically is stronger on preps and North Carolina is typically stronger on college. North Carolina has had some really good preps in recent years. I mean, Walker Jenkins just coming out is a, a pretty good headliner. Decent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious to run some numbers in terms of like players drafted in recent years to see like both volume and quality. Cause I really don't think after the elite three of those big Southern States, 
you you have too many other cases outside of like I think Georgia and North Carolina have the two best cases, maybe like Tennessee, um, maybe Illinois. I don't know. All right. Well, sticking with uh, Wake Forest America, you mentioned Duncan Marston from right-handed pitcher out of California mm. as a guy who really moved up the rankings this year. It sounds like he's in the top two rounds range yeah. right now. Um, what was it with him? Because he was, like you said earlier, like when he was a freshman, he – I mean, we don't rank high school freshmen yet, but he definitely started hearing about him. Uh, then he had Tommy John surgery, didn't pitch, obviously, after that, came back. Sounds like he was really good in the spring. Did did you see him pitch in the summer at all? Because he didn't pitch a whole lot again because of – I I don't think I saw him. Actually, it's funny. Josh was at USA Baseball, I think, when he was pitching for the Canes it's for some mm-hmm. event. Um, yeah, Josh saw him. Yeah, so he was at that, and we actually have video of him there, and I was like – when, when Marston was getting some buzz early on and I was trying to figure out where to spot him on this list, I pulled that video up and it's really funny because Josh is sitting right behind the plate. He's got like the perfect view at one of USA Baseball's backfields and Duncan rips off this slider and Josh just like his jaw drops and he looks at the scout next to him and is like, did you just see that? And I, I messaged Josh. I was like, hey, like, do you remember seeing Duncan Marston? He's like, who? Like he had forgotten about him because it was some random prep guy at the time that wasn't a huge name. I was like, yeah, you're, you need to go look at your video of him again. He's he's kind of blowing up. And I remember last fall, too, I think I was in Jupiter talking with some scout. He's like, hey, you need to keep this guy like on your radar. Like he's a guy who could pop. And so I, I, I don't think I have seen him live. If you're saying that was his only event, then I definitely didn't see him live. Um, but yeah, very quickly this spring, I think it was like a scrimmage or some early season event for Harvard-Westlake. He threw... And again, touch 99, was flashing a plus breaking ball, was flashing a solid changeup. Um, it's a great frame. It looked pretty easy coming out of his hand, and it was like pretty loud, the feedback coming back from just that look. Um, I There are going to be teams who will want to see it more often before they're like, yeah, he's definitely in the first round. Again, some scouts I've talked to already have him in that range. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Cole Phillips when he was jumping up very early on in his spring before he got hurt. Um, I think Phillips came, I think we had him in the top 50 and people were talking about him as a no doubt first rounder. Then he got hurt and that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, I just think it's, it's a great body. It's great stuff. Uh, and I guess your mileage may vary in terms of how much you want to ding him, um, for the TJ that's already on the resume. I know for some teams, it's a big red flag, uh, for others, they're just looking at the stuff and kind of dreaming on the upside. But I mean, the fact that he's committed to Wake Forest too out of California, the fact that Wake is now out there getting like these elite talents out of California, I think speaks to where they're at as a program now. You, A few years ago, you wouldn't have seen a player like this committed to Wake Forest, I don't think, from Southern California. That it doesn't feel like it would, would have been normal. Yeah, no, they're definitely recruiting big time nationally, just like the other arms we have in our top 100 too. Brian Sloan in Illinois, Chris Lavonis in New Jersey. Yeah. Bringing in top arms from everywhere. It's funny to think about a, a program like Wake Forest that has such a hitter-friendly park being a pitching factory. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they they have they have turned out their their hitters as well. Brock Wilkin looks pretty good, and Nick Kurtz has a chance to be like the highest 
drafted player ever out of Wake Forest. They've got a chance for two. I, I don't think they've had a single hitter drafted inside the top ten. They could have two this year between Kurtz and Seaver King. So, like if we thought of the Rockies as like this dominant pitching, <laughs> exactly. Factor. Yeah, um, yeah, it really is like that. I wonder. Yeah, I, man. I so one. I, I I just hope he stays healthy the entire year, so we can just get a full healthy spring from him everything is good to go uh like you said he was he was i think he was up to 95 in the summer i we had him top 50 something in our high school player rankings for the class in the by the end of the summer um or at some point in the summer um but now he's up to 99 sounds like electric stuff when he is on the mound i do wonder how much that you know, the, the the draft last year was stacked, but we also had at the same time just one high school pitcher <laughs> who went in the first round, and it was Noble Meyer, who um, is like textbook everything you could ask for pretty much in a yeah. high school pitching prospect. That's a good question because I do think like we don't have that Noble Meyer type who checks all the boxes, but the class is worse. So does that mean like, there'll be more opportunity for one of these high school pitchers or because you don't have that sort of universally praised high school pitching prospect, you're just going to go to other demographics first. It'll be very interesting to see. I, I felt like initially when you said that I would take the over on high school pitchers going in the first round, but I, I don't know that I would actually go for that. Yeah. I, I think it'll be a, kind of a split camp where to me, like that kind of profile, I, I really like him as a player it's just a matter of do you use a first round pick and it is just so player. much easier to take that player later and overpay him compared to just the the slotting dynamics how that works for a college player but like even if even if the industry is saying like based on the money we're giving you we're viewing you as a first round talent like them officially going there is more difficult than the college equivalent you know you kind of have to take the college guy yeah well and i mean teams you know certainly in the college ranks too are willing to you know if, if a guy's been hurt <laughs> are willing to take a guy early still and pay up for him like to an extent that i would not personally be comfortable doing in that position i mean i think of you know Jaden hill coming out of lsu after having maybe like 40 50 at most college innings under his belt, not his fault that he didn't pitch in 2020 all that much, but you know, he did get hurt and uh, was not particularly successful when he was on the field or, or Reggie Crawford who had very limited yeah. pitching experience, a little different as a two way guy, but uh, you know, I think they're uh, you know, the, the team there, there are still going to be certain teams that are not going to be, um, as, as concerned as I am when it comes to taking a guy with um, some hmm. more medical red flags that high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm curious, Ben, what do you think about this college group up top? Because you spend a lot of time with the high school players. Like I, I tend to be more aligned with where you're at on the high school players, but it like, are you, is this a group that you're excited about? Are you lukewarm on? Like, do you like any of these players better than the others? I'm curious, like, Outside of Weatherhold, I think you would take him one, and correct me if that's not true. Which of these players inside the top 10 on the college side are you most excited about? Yeah, I think the Weatherhold is the most, um, maybe not the most well-rounded. You can maybe give that to uh, Sorota, but even more confidence in Weatherhold's hmm. hitting ability. And, and you compare him to Nick Hertz, you just have more, um, more defensive 
value that he brings to the table with Kurtz, whereas Kurtz, it's yeah, you know, like you said, maybe maybe you can throw him in left field, but it's probably first base. Really I thought with it, him. Um, I thought it was I, telling when I was debating flipping Weatherholt and Kurtz when I asked uh, our Slack, and I'm pretty sure every person who responded said Weatherholt. <laughs> Uh, instead of Kurtz, so we definitely have a preference in the office for those it's, profiles. Yeah, it's it's a great swing. I, I think he, he's not that big of a guy, but there's power in there too. There's not a lot of holes in his game uh, offensively, but yeah. Then I look, you know, beyond those top few guys, there's guy like I, I like pretty much everybody who's in that top ten to a certain extent. Mm. But if they were all in the draft last year I'd, I'd like them all let's say this if you're if you're picking fifth overall and the top four goes chalk on our board it goes weatherholt kurtz bizana caglione who are you most excited about to draft fifth overall if the first oh, four on our board are gone you can pick from any of the players in the five to ten and i guess if there's someone outside of that you could pick from as well but i'm curious which of these college profiles outside of the top four you're most excited about or you'd be most inclined to buy into because yeah, i think you know, if, there's so many obvious question marks with all of them that i'm, I'm kind of just curious where you line yeah if, if it's tomorrow probably the sirota or siever king are, are pretty intriguing uh if vance honeycutt answers some more of the questions on the uh the pure hit uh, he's very intriguing then um and then I like I, I I'm I'm excited about Chase Burns. I mean, this guy's throwing uh, 100 miles an hour. Uh, it's not just you know big velocity either. I think he has a chance to miss a lot of bats. I'm more optimistic than most maybe about his chances to continue as a starter versus just move to the uh, bullpen. So I I think he's somebody who uh, I could see jumping up this board because it is pretty electric stuff kind of coming out of his hand wow yeah you know it's a down class one at five overall ben's talking about a pitcher that's when you know <laughs> well i like the i like the college pitchers but mm. um yeah i mean um and then it's like you know from the high school side who could who could jump into this group in the top five i, I think probably the obvious candidate would have to be connor griffin because if he yeah. if 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 the bat clicks there's there's nobody or maybe a, a couple of guys who are a lot more raw than he is, who can match his level of physicality, tools, athleticism that he has. Hmm. You know, like, I think that makes sense. I also wonder how much he'll be able to prove as a Mississippi hitter. Like, I almost look down towards a guy like Cam Caminiti as a player who could jump up hmm. because he is exceptionally young for the class. He's got a great body. I think as we stand today, he seems to be viewed as the the sort of top pitcher in the class. There's not the amount of separation that we had a year ago with, with Noble Meyer. And maybe that's not even true because Thomas White was kind of the next guy up. Um, but it, it definitely felt like Noble Meyer was the guy. Cam Caminiti is the guy to the extent that we have one this year. And if he comes out this spring and is like a few ticks higher in velocity and is really snapping off nasty breaking balls, he's, he's showing a great change up. Like it wouldn't shock me if he moved up um further just because i feel like he'll be able to move the needle for himself more than a guy like connor griffin will because so much of what connor griffin does as a hitter this spring will be reflective of like the talent that he's facing and for a lot of the hitters i think they kind of have like 
they've kind of established their stock based on what they did last summer and fall. And that's not entirely true because Jackson Holiday is obviously a great example you could point to as a player who significantly moved up boards. But a big part of that for Holiday was he got a lot more physical and the tools took a step forward. I mean, Connor Griffin is Mr. Tools now. Like, it's not like he's going to maybe he's got he'll he'll just start showing a bunch of 80s but like in terms of tool set he already has that so the biggest question for him is the pure hitting and i just don't know how much teams are going to look at him dominating mississippi high school competition and say yeah we really feel a grade better about his hit tool now i mean maybe there are some mechanical changes maybe the bat speed looks better maybe like maybe he does make some like substantial improvements there because on tools and athleticism and youth, I, I do think you're right. He has the sort of tool set and an athletic foundation that makes sense to move up. I just wonder how much he'll be able to move the needle just based on where he's playing. Or you're a team picking in the top 10, top five, and you bring him in for pre-draft workouts and you have him face your pro arms for yeah. a day, give him mm. I don't know, a whole bunch of, Live ABs. The Keone Cavaco treatment where he shows off in some workouts. Well, just, you know, make sure not just like BP, but have him face real professional pitchers and make sure you're testing him to, uh, um, you know, to a good extent uh, against live arms, guys who are already in professional baseball uh, that will give him much more stern test than what he's going to face, like you said, in Mississippi high school baseball yeah. um but you know you know whether, whether you think that's good process or not I, I think just that's a scenario where somebody can significantly elevate their um their stock from some of those pre-draft looks on the right day in front of the right people i'd be curious how often these players are actually going up in in live bp situations like that i would imagine that's like an agent's nightmare <laughs> is putting their player in that sort of scenario uh yeah, it depends. <laughs> depends. If your your guys if your guys good. It, it feels like it feels like it, it, for players like Connor Griffin who are already viewed as first round talents, it's mostly you're in a risk mitigation mode. Whereas if you're looking up and your client is like third, fourth round, and, and you're convicted in him, then you can put him in that scenario. Uh, but it does feel like all the. I mean, this is part of the reason why they were really trying to get these guys to go out to the combine is. There's not a lot of incentive for the, the top end guys to do it. Um, it does seem like they're doing a better job of getting those players out there, though. So, yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, if the Cleveland Guardians come calling and say, "Hey, we want you to come to our," you know, or the Reds picking at two, Rockies three, like, yeah, I think he would be excited to go and get an opportunity to um, yeah. put on a good show for sure for one of those clubs. I I, I think the. Um, I think the shortstops, like the high school shortstops are the area where because there's such a lack of it this year, both on the college side and high school side. And that's, you know, the the position really that teams are looking for more than anything. Uh, so I could see some of these high school shortstops who we have uh, maybe in like the back of the first round range or somewhere in the top few rounds hmm. if they have a a huge spring could move themselves up somebody like a Carter Johnson. If, if he has a great spring, you're looking for a, a hitterish shortstop left-handed hitting shortstop, really smooth, easy swing. Everything kind of moves and flows right in the box with him. Uh, I could see him taking a jump forward uh, high school shortstop from, uh, from Alabama, uh, Charlie Bates from California. Another guy where, 
uh, another left-handed hitting shortstop. Everything moves the right way. Uh, the actions, uh, good good defensive actions too. Um, Owen Pano is another one uh, from New York who he, you know, coming into like at this time last year, really coming into the summer, uh, I, I would have expected him to be in the first round range pretty comfortably right now. Uh, but then he went out in the summer, kind of up and down, didn't quite perform the way uh, I'm sure, you know, he was hoping for and a lot of scouts were hoping for, but uh, still a lot of things to like with him, six foot three, uh, like Mensa baseball IQ type player, very high instincts for the game. Um, I actually think he has a chance to stay at, at shortstop because he has such good body control and internal clock and instincts. Uh, uh, you know, he's so big. We'll see. He reminds me of like a Marcella Meyer sort of shortstop defender with his size, but like really great actions, instincts that kind of help everything play up really well. Yeah, like I think you look at him just physically and you're like, oh, like he looks like maybe a third baseman, but then he, the way he plays shortstop, oh, no, I think he at least put him out there and give him a chance to, uh, to stay at the position. And then, um, you know, a lot of things to like at the plate, but just want to see some more yeah. consistent performance. And if he does go out this year and answer those, you know, those questions, uh, he's another guy I could see taking a big jump up the list just because, you know, he does have that chance to mm-hmm. uh, play shortstop, and that is what teams are play such a high priority on. Yeah, one of the other shortstops in the high school class that I'm excited about and think he could move up as well is Brendan Lawson. And I think he shares some similarities in terms of like maybe you look at him and think he's the third baseman. He's a fairly physical player, six foot three, two hundred pounds. Uh, already has a lot of strength in the lower half. I don't think he's quite as um, gifted a defender as Pano is, but. He did impress with the bat a little bit more than Pano last summer and fall. Like the setup is a bit unconventional and weird. It's a really high handset. Reminds me a little of, of how Nolan Shanuel did it last spring. But he rakes, he hits for power, he uses all fields. Um, I, I thought he was pretty impressive um, in, in the ability to hit and hit for power. As a guy who, if, even if you don't think he's a shortstop, I think he could be a pretty good third baseman with more than enough arm strength to stick there. He would be a guy that wouldn't shock me if he he was one of those players that jumped up the board and snuck into the back of the first round. Yeah, I've been a big fan of his uh, <laughs> for a while. Uh, yeah, it does a lot of things you like at the plate, hitting ability, hmm. uh, power that you mentioned too uh, from the left side. Canadian uh, kid who's going to be at uh, P27 Academy this year in South Carolina, so he'll get a lot of hmm. um, you know a lot of eyes on him. Uh, another guy in the in the Carolinas for you now. Yeah. Keep going, Carolinas. Um, one of the profiles that actually it might be a bit of a strength. I know we're talking about all the weaknesses of this draft class, but we do have four catchers ranked inside the top 25 right now. They're all fairly close together, led by Kate Arambide, the only high school catcher of the group. And then we've got Malcolm Moore at Stanford, Caleb Lomavita at California, and then Jacob Kozart, who we mentioned previously uh, at NC State. I know you love Kate Arambide. Um, but what's your preference of these four catchers? Would you just take the high school player with the tools and the massive arm strength and the elite defensive chops plus all fields raw power? Or would you want to go with one of these college profiles? It it feels like the industry really likes when catchers go to college and prove it and less risk is associated with the profile at that point um, for a number of reasons. Uh, so if you're a right-handed hitting high school catcher, 
it's an uphill battle in terms of getting the draft compensation that you probably deserve a lot of the times, just because there are teams that are just so scared of that profile. They'll just wait for you to go to college and, and take you a few years later when you don't have as much risk associated with you. But I do think this is maybe one of the areas of the class. You could say this is a strength of the draft class. We have four really good catchers who right now we review them as first rounders. And I think, uh, some of them might be squeezed out in stronger years, but um, I think in any given year, you would like a lot of these profiles. Do you, uh, you know, are there guys who, of those college group, is there one you think is, has the best chance to stick behind the plate or are some of these guys college catchers who have some yeah. positional <laughs> questions here? I actually think they're all bat first catchers who are going to need to continue to prove it behind the plate. Um and in descending order of like most likely to stick to least likely, I would probably go Caleb Lomavita, Jacob Cozart, Malcolm Moore. And I really don't know if I'd take Cozart over Lomavita because I actually think Cozart is more refined as a receiver and thrower, but Lomavita has a more typical frame and his athleticism is such that I think he can make a lot of strides in that department. Uh, I think Moore has the most risk to not catch. At the next level, he feels like a Kevin Parada, Henry Davis-ish type of profile where you're really excited about the bat. Uh, it's a lot of pop. You maybe can feel confident about that player profiling, even if he has to move off. But he doesn't move around as well. He needs to improve as a blocker and as a receiver. But he has just monstrous power from the left side with a, a pretty good track record of hitting going back to his high school days. So, I mean, you've got a lot of fairly different flavors, but none of them are are the sort of defender that that Kate Aaron Beatty is. Yeah, oh, Aaron Beatty is like there. There are very few catchers I can recall who who can throw the way that mm. he can. And I mean, it's uh, I think I don't know how you could put anything less than a seventy on his arm. Uh, that might even be conservative because when when you add everything up to between the raw arm strength the accuracy, the footwork, the transfer, the release, his ability to, you know, backhand pick balls in the dirt, make a clean throw to second base on a line, uh, you know, pop times like pretty consistently, you know, certainly under 2-0, a lot under 1-9, you know, sometimes on his best throws under 1-8 where you're like, this no this has to be a mistake let me go back check on the video oh that really was in the one sevens like <laughs> ridiculous throws for a high school catcher to be making and then he does have you know he's hitting balls toward the top of the batters i usa yeah. last summer he was he has, doing that regularly he did that at area codes as well and yeah. i know it sounds like san diego is easier to hit it out than maybe usa is but he repeatedly hitting the middle of the batter's eye going out to the opposite field hitting in game at area codes it was like him and caleb bonimer maybe slade caldwell who are like the most impressive hitters there he just has a lot of tools for a premium position so someone is going to get excited about taking that risk but man he's, yeah, he's a I fun think package i yeah, do I do think there are going to be people in the industry that are more pessimistic about his receiving because there were a few events, one of these like all-star events, I think baseball factory in particular, where he just, he was boxing a lot of balls and like dropping, dropping balls when he normally looks super fluid. And I think that like, it makes sense to me that in these specific showcase environments, the catchers are 
probably at the biggest disadvantage. You're dealing with a lot of pitchers each inning, pitchers that you don't really know that well. You don't know their stuff. You haven't worked with them that often. You're also just like probably exhausted from all the events you've been going to, the travel. So like I give catchers a lot of leeway in terms of like how they look behind the plate. But I do remember that event, like hearing some scouts like say like this is what Aaron Bide is as a defender. And so I'm curious how much that'll be a holdup for some people who maybe haven't seen him as frequently as you have behind the plate, Ben. Yeah. I mean, like we said, Texas high school baseball is just starting up for him <laughs> at end of the summer there. I'm sure he's fatigued too, to a certain extent. I think people who saw him, I, I you know, I'm sure all the Texas area scouts has been watching this guy forever. Uh, he caught, he was a catcher too on that Canes national team. So he's catching, uh, you know, Duncan Marston and Cooper Williams and Tegan Coons and Maverick Rizzi and all these other <laughs> top arms uh, that they run through that team. So I don't really have any questions about him um, sticking behind the plate. I, I think he's mm. going to be one of the best defensive catchers in the minors right away as soon as he uh, signs. I, I think it's I, I think probably the more of the risk is just the pure hit with him. I mean, he does have yep. huge power and, uh, you know, there's feel for hitting, but just the swing path itself is geared to you know, really try to lift the ball. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be some swing and miss there, but um, you know, if he hits enough, he has a chance to be, you know, 25 plus home run guy. You can catch and um, you know, <laughs> definitely control the running game. Uh, I hope nobody has any doubts about, <laughs> about that part of his game. And I you know yeah. we saw Blake Mitchell go uh, as high as he did last year with the Royals. So yeah, I hope uh, he does have a Blake Mitchell spring. I know, I know Mitchell did a, a nice job just showing a lot of contact because he had some swing and miss questions entering the spring as well. And I do think like uh, in contrast to, to maybe guys like Connor Griffin, like he's probably playing in an area where his performance uh, will have like a, a little bit bigger of a lever in terms of how it can change your opinions. Um, so if he just makes a lot of contact, shores up some of the swing and miss that he's shown, um, you're looking at a pretty well-rounded profile. Yeah. I do think there, if we're looking at a strength of the draft class, you alluded to it early in the show. You're just how many, just how many high school arms are throwing 95 miles an hour, um, and, and I don't just mean velocity. There's just there's a whole depth of arms on the high school side this year where. Um, you know, you, you still want to see some more. You you want to see a lot of guys continue to take the next step forward. Like I, I wouldn't put anybody at the Noble Meyer Thomas White level that we had at this time last year. But I know, I don't know who, but I know some of these guys are going to take a jump forward because there's a whole, a whole host of high school pitchers who I, I think will be very appealing in that second, third round range, and probably somebody who. Uh, is on our top 200 right now who's going to jump themselves into that hmm. you know first round maybe somewhere in the first round mix even yeah i think i would expand that to college too like i i really think there's just a huge depth of armed talent in this class and it'll be it'll all for the college players more so it'll come down to like the performance they showcase this spring and for the high school players yeah just the consistency outing to outing showing their best stuff it's even into like the the deep 100s of this list like getting further into the the back quarter of this list the the amount of like pure stuff that i'm writing about and all these players like at some point i think you talk about it when you're writing up pitchers for for the international market like they all start to blend together and sound the same i i had a lot of that 
when I was writing about pitchers for this top 200 because seemingly everyone has velocity and everyone has, even if they don't have like a consistently plus breaking ball, like a lot of these guys are flashing it often enough. Like it's, it's almost shocking. I would love to find a way to kind of aggregate a lot of this scouting report data and try and compare it in bulk to what high school players were throwing, even as, as recently as like 2018, when I first started to see if like just that velocity is becoming more and more common. I would expect that that's the case. It, it seems like we're still tracking upwards in terms of average velocity at, at all levels. Um, but it's, it is crazy. And it's, there are going to be a lot of really good pitchers that, that get to college because there are just some teams that don't want to spend on high school pitchers in general. Um, there's so much competition in that demographic. Once you get into like the three plus round range that there's just going to be a lot of guys who, who know how good they are and they're not going to get the money offered to them. And so they're going to take their chances in going to college and becoming like a chase Burns sort of profile. Um, so I'll be very interested to see if we can get some sort of, and I mean, we don't have like a consensus order for pitchers too far into any draft class, but it really feels like we've got a huge, just giant mess of pitchers that you could line up in whatever way. I'm curious if we get any sort of consensus order, even into like the top two rounds this spring, that would, it would both make my job easier. And I think it would make the jobs of scouts easier. And they're kind of just waiting to see who's going to perform. Yeah. Do you have a pick to click either from the college pitching side or from the high school pitching group that you think could be one of those guys because like there's probably some guys where it's like yeah like i, I like him but he's probably not going to go higher than mm. you know like third rounder or so but then there's other guys where it's like ooh, if everything comes together this year you could really shoot up the the boards yeah i do um let's see here william kirk is one that i like you know i like my left-handers i think the strike throwing could be a separator for him and if he comes out this spring and is stronger um, the fact that he throws left-handed, the fact that he has a strong foundation of control, I like his changeup. Um, if he just shows a little bit more power, I think he could move up boards. Ethan Scheifelbein would be in a similar like prospect phylum for me. Both these guys are players who we have right around the third round range. It wouldn't shock me if they showed more power uh, and came out and, and moved up higher. Um, I like Zach Swanson quite a bit uh, out of Washington. The Pacific Northwest has done a really nice job producing prep arms in recent years. Every time I saw Swanson last summer, I felt like he performed well. Um, so he would be another one that I look at. Let's see, going into the hundreds, um, there will definitely be players that that I like. How about on the, on the college side? Um, there is a college reliever who I really like. Uh, there's a lot of left-handed pitchers. I'm kind of scanning down our list trying to get there. Uh you give me some of your names as I'm finding my guys here. Yeah, I'll, uh, you know, set set aside anybody in our top 50, for example, because those guys are already pretty high up the board. Um, I think Chris Lavonis, who we mentioned earlier, to stay on the yeah. Wake Forest bias that um, we're, we're now famous for, I guess. Um, mm. Yeah, just does a lot of things, uh, just a lot of arrows pointing up, trending the right direction um velocity into the mid 90s uh, it sounds like some flashes of a little bit more in some preseason pens uh, i think that'll translate we'll see that come out with a little bit extra juice this spring uh good feel for his breaking stuff uh pitchability is there uh like I, I like a lot of things about him i think there's a lot of 
uh, upside and chance for him to uh, really move up boards mm-hmm. this year. Um, the- uh, if you want to, if you want a lefty, I, I think Johnny King. Yeah, in Florida is a really interesting one. Uh, he's young for the class. He'll be he'll still be seventeen on draft day. Um, six foot three, like one hundred eighty something pounds. Um, a lot more projection there to throw hard. It's a uh, you know like a like a lower type slot to him, but uh, big swing and miss on on his curveball. I think he's got bat missing stuff and, and a chance to throw um, harder than he does now. So I, I think you see more velocity come from him, uh, a younger pitcher in the class, the chance for a lot of things to uh, click and move up for him. Yeah. The guy I was going to mention is Indiana state left-hander Jared Spencer. We have him ranked in, at, at 137. He's been a full-time reliever for Indiana state and took a huge step forward in velocity from 2022 to 2023. He was pitching in the upper eighties. He jumped up to sitting around 93, touching 98, added power to a slider. He looks like just a freak on the mound. The The body is phenomenal, six foot three, 195 pounds. Um, just the step forward that he made in stuff and strikeout rate year over year was monumental. And watching some video of him, he was super fascinating for me. I think if, if he's able to throw a bit more strikes, I'm not sure what role he's going to be in, um, but just in terms of arm talent and physicality, he is a pitcher that I really love on the college side. I'm excited to see what he's looking like. Um, I think Cooper Williams at Alvin, Texas, uh, Alvin High School in Texas, excuse me, he's fairly interesting. I'm kind of just picking out all these left-handed pitchers. Another like lean, projectable player who if he adds some more strength, it wouldn't be shocking um, to see him take a step forward. The changeup again, I guess I'm just like guys who are left-handed who can throw changeups on the high school side. Um, I think he needs to maybe improve the breaking stuff a little bit, but he's just got that body that I like to get excited about, um, packing on some strength. Uh, let me see if there are any other names to mention, but you, you really could like pick a random pitcher on this list and get excited about something that they do on the mound. Um, I just want to make sure there's no other guy that like, I really found myself liking that I, I'll regret not talking up. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think like, Bryce Message uh, from New Jersey, Kate Townsend from hmm. California, guys who can really spin the ball. Um, two guys who I think could make a jump up. But yeah, like you said, there's we can just name name after name after name. There's there's <laughs> something like if he's if you're on the top, you know, or you see him on the top 200. There's something where it's like, okay, yeah. there's a chance this guy could really click up. The last guy I'll mention is Carson Messina, who is at the same high school that PJ Orlando's at in. Uh... Somerville, South Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about players who can spin the ball. Like at his best, he shows maybe one of the best breaking balls in the class. I've heard 70s on this pitch. It's like a really tight, late breaking, mid 80s slider. Um, it's most, mostly fastball slider. Another guy that's been in the mid 90s, he's touched 96. He's got good life on the fastball. I think the element for him this spring is showing more control. If he comes out, shows more control, maybe flashes a third pitch. It'd be a lot easier to talk yourself into him from a, a scouting department standpoint. Um, so he'd be one other one just to mention. The the, the feel for spin at his best is, is pretty phenomenal with Messina. Any other names you want to mention, Ben? Uh, well, other than rattling off every high school pitcher, <laughs> we can. Okay, uh, it's like, so no, that's a lot good. Of them, so. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think that that's about that about does it for me. Unless you have any other questions for the class. No. Do you want to go into listener questions? Yeah, we have one question that's kind of related to some of the conversation we've had today um, from Central Coast Baseball on Instagram, who asks, "How has fewer rounds and fewer minor league teams affected drafting and scouting?" We could probably talk about this for hours, um, but I think the biggest thing to me that stands out about fewer rounds and, and fewer teams in the minors is one for like the players specifically you can draft there's less there are less opportunities in the pro game for deep projection profiles and i think that a lot of those profiles maybe were becoming less popular for a lot of teams they just teams feel more comfort in not having to project. There are a lot of teams that use models. There are a lot of teams that just want to draft out of college and, and let, let these players develop in college. But there are a lot of teams too who who want to take on some of these high-risk, high-upside, like high-variance players because they believe in their ability to develop those players. And you just have less opportunities because you have fewer lower-level teams in the minors where you can really get those players in and not put them immediately just... Um, over like underwater in terms of competition, you want them to be in an environment where they can play every day and not fail. Uh, and, and so I think there's just less opportunity for those specific profiles in the current minor league system. I also think too, with 20 rounds, day three is a day for like area scouts to really go add a lot of value for teams. And you just cut off a lot of rounds to do that as an area scout. Um, and so I think teams that really value their area scouts and, and teams who employ really good area scouts just have less opportunities to gain competitive advantages. And maybe you can get a little bit of that back with the NDFA market or the undrafted free agent market where you're actually selling a player on your team too. And so um, you have complete control over who you're signing and the player has control over where they're going. So there is another element of that, but I do think like you lose some of that. And those are the two biggest things that jump out to me in a 20 round draft and with fewer minor league teams. But what do you think, Ben? Well, yeah, I think that's true. And then on the international side, there's an impact as well, not just with the reduction in the number of minor league teams, but with MLB this year, they have the right to, you know, they're, they're reducing the domestic roster limit from 180 players to 165 players. So you're cutting 15 players per team for 30 teams 450 roster spots right so in the dominican summer league sure like those roster spots don't count against the limit a lot of teams have two dsl teams but eventually like the goal is to bring those players over to the states uh and as soon as they're coming over for the arizona or the florida complex league they're counting against that limit so the international scouts that i talked to generally or overwhelmingly uh, hate these restrictions because it means that they're having to make quicker decisions on when to release players. So you have your DSL team and you're going to bring over a lot of those players to play in rookie ball in the States the next year. So if, you know, the, the player who was already over in the States in the complex league, he's, 18, 19 years old, but he's not quite ready to make that jump to uh, to low A yet. He would really benefit from that in-between level like we used to have with the New York Penn League, the Appy League, but those don't exist anymore. And what's going to end up happening is 
teams are just going to have to release that player at 19 years old who maybe they just signed two years ago. Or you go down one more level. All right, what about your DSL teams? What the teams are telling me is that that raw projection guy, kind of like you were talking about in the draft, the player who you think is going to need two years in the Dominican Summer League is now less appealing because teams want to continue to sign new players, uh, bring new players into the system. If your but, development is stalling as a player, it feels like there is a just this knock-on effect that you're stalling everything else and you're forcing decisions to be made. So if, you, if you're a team that feels like you're going to move slowly, you're kind of hurting a lot of other people around you is what the thinking would be from the team side. You need to keep yeah. moving. Well, there, yeah, and they're right now, now there are just fewer available spaces for those players to play. So if and they they want to keep signing, they want to keep bringing in players, new players in the system at at significant volume. So they're just going to churn through more players, which means they're going to release players out of the DSL. Which you know, look, teams always release players out of the DSL. That that part is not new, but the rate at which they're going to or, or that we, I think we're going to see it happening is going to increase because, uh, or, or teams will just take fewer chances on that raw athlete. And then, yeah, like, all right, well, you could say, all right, well, most big leaguers who sign from Latin America, you know, like they're the good ones. They either skip the DSL entirely uh, or they're there for one season. They, they hit well, they go up the next year. But you do have cases like Starling Marte, who played in the DSL, when he was 18 years old, uh, wasn't good <laughs> for his first year. He repeated the DSL the next year at 19 years old. Uh, he ended up having an outstanding career. He was that raw athlete who had tools, who just needed a couple of seasons to get it going in the DSL. So with the reduction in minor league teams, and especially the domestic roster limits where you know, we're going to see either an increased churn rate of players um, or a reduction in the number of players who get signed, neither of which are being done for baseball reasons to put the best product on the field for fans. Uh, but instead, it's just a labor cost containment mechanism for owners, which is, I don't know, for me, <laughs> don't love that. I will say the the one... The one benefit of the new minor league system is that, and maybe it's not related at all to just contracting the number of teams. Maybe you could have done this in the old system and you could have just had a win-win, but the lives for minor league players and the conditions and the, the money they're making now is better than it used to be. I think that's something we need to mention and talk about. I don't know to what extent, uh, is it like, where does the line cross where you're, you're happy with if this many jobs are cut and this many opportunities are cut, but for the people who are in the system, uh, if life is just so much better, like what is the level where you're, you're fine with that trade-off? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it certainly has to be acknowledged that for most minor leaguers who are still in the system, it is better than it previously has been. They have representation now. Um, so that's something to mention, at least I'm curious where you think the trade-off is for that aspect of it. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other that has to happen. I, yeah. I think, you know, paying, you know, paying a guy who's in the, you know, what in 
in the complex league or in low A, 20 grand a year, 20 something thousand dollars a year is not like uh, some arduous sacrifice that, <laughs> you know, the owners who are uh, collectively bringing in, I think it's 11 billion now in revenue. Um, I don't think it's some great sacrifice for them to make. And I don't think the, you know, if, if they want to um, make up for the increase in cost there by cutting more teams, I, I think, I, you know, obviously they have the right to do that. Uh, I'm not questioning the legality of it, but is it better for the game overall? I, I think the answer is no. Like, it's definitely not better for players to have fewer opportunities. And I don't think it's better for fans if we're, um, you know, reducing the number of um, players that are getting an opportunity here. Yeah, especially from Latin America where it's like, like what there's, there's no continuing development system for players. If they're, you know, once they're 19 years old and they're outside of professional baseball now, like in, in the States, sure. All right, go like, you don't get signed out of uh, high school. Just go play college baseball for two years, three years, go play junior college baseball. There's another development Avenue for you to uh, continue and, and get signed when you're, 21, 22 years old. Uh, there just isn't that opportunity for, you know, the same player in the Dominican Republic or Venezuela. So uh, kind of everybody seems to just end up losing from this scenario, mm-hmm. except for, uh, you know, I would actually like, include the owners in this because I, I think long-term it's just worse for the game, even if short-term they're yeah. able to cut labor costs. <laughs> Yeah, so really good question from Central Coast Baseball. Uh, We appreciate that one. Uh, That's all we have today in terms of questions. Ben, is there anything you want to mention before we get out of here? Uh, No, just a lot of good stuff, I think, coming this month as we get uh, ready for the season. All of our college preview stuff that uh, uh, Teddy and Peter have worked up is uh, phenomenal. The stuff that's out so far, the stuff that's in the on the works and obviously what you put out today with the draft update and some other uh, high school and college preview stuff that we've got coming. I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, same here. I'm very excited to actually get on the ground, see some games. Um, so yeah, no, nothing really to add. Just thank you guys for listening. Thanks for supporting the site. We have a lot more coming obviously in season. There will be consistent coverage of the college game. Uh, we'll have draft updates regularly throughout the year as we get risers, fallers, pop-up prospects. I know everyone likes a good pop-up prospect. Um, so just excited to get this season rolling. We're very close now. Um, so again, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Thanks for listening. If you want to send us any questions, um, concerns, comments, feedback, you can at future projection at baseballamerica.com. That's our email. These are all linked below in every episode. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Badler. You can follow him on Instagram at Ben Badler. And you can follow me on Twitter at Carlos A. Calazzo. So for Ben, I'm Carlos. So long, everybody. <laughs>